but most Sundays it's, uh, I'm the one who get to, gets to do this, and so we're going through a series in Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 8. Thank you, Brennan. Um, we're in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, so as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible in your hand, by the way, we'd love to get one in your hand, and, and if you are a regular attender here, we would love to give you a gift, actually anybody who doesn't have it at this point because we have a lot of extras, um, a gift of a little journal of Ecclesiastes. It has the, uh, the text from the ESV translation on one side, and then it's, I think, empty on the other, so you can take notes. So if you don't have that, um, you can go to the back, actually, or, or raise your hand. One of the ushers could get you one. We will project the, the verses on the screen, but uh, I want to avoid the, uh, the habit of just relying on that because I think having the scriptures in your hand, whether electronically or on paper, uh, will we'll serve you better. You'll be able to follow the message, too. I can't show you every verse or reference I, I make as we go. Um, so as you're turning there, um, let me just remind you about some major themes in this book. Ecclesiastes is teaching us how to live in a broken world. Um, we're often, uh, things don't work out as we expect. We're good. Uh, what we do that's good is often unrewarded and can even result in suffering and, at times, Evil seems to be rewarded. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes uh, forces us to face these realities without glossing over them or ignoring them like we might do at times. He painfully and repeatedly points out the problems in this life under the sun um, and, and calls us to something different than how the world might respond to these realities, calls us to a deep and robust wisdom. And so that's really what we're learning in Ecclesiastes, looking at these these problems of the world, these things that are even paradoxes that seem to be opposed to each other, to face these things honestly and to bring God's truth uh, into view in light of these things. Today I want to talk about this chapter, chapter 8, and the title of the message is The Paradox. Um, we're going to see uh, that it addresses the reality that sometimes evil people succeed and good people fail. Uh, in certain ways. I don't know if, you've, uh, if you watch the Oscars regularly. Sometimes we watch them. And over the years, there's probably been thousands of acceptance speeches given. And there's one person who has been praised uh, almost as much as God has been in Oscar acceptance speeches. World-famous actors have said things about this person such as, God bless you. He believed in us. No one else has the guts, courage, and commitment he does. Thanks for your dedication and vision. Thanks for putting your heart behind this film. You break my heart with your passion and support. He was named as one of the most influential people in the world. He was a supporter and friend of senators and presidents, all the while preying on women. Over a career of 45 years in the film industry, 87 different women finally brought accusations of a sexual assault and indecent acts by this person. And despite all the praise and all the adulation and all the popularity, it was shown that he was guilty, he was convicted, and sentenced to 23 years in prison. And you may now know who I'm talking about. Harvey Weinstein, currently in jail and experiencing failing health. His life presents what we're going to see in this passage, the reality that those who are doing evil can be praised and admired. There's this paradox 
of yes, there's wisdom in this world, but then there are these contradictory things, these, these things that are called vanity or uncertainties or emptiness or meaninglessness that go alongside at times with wisdom. We do see justice being served in some measure for Mr. Weinstein right now. But for 45 years, that wasn't the case. And so what was it like to be his victim during that time? How did you process through the reality that he's being praised profusely while doing these things that no one else perhaps knows about? How are they supposed to deal with this reality of an evil man being in such favor? Well, our passage today helps the victims. It helps us when we are faced with this paradox of, of good and evil, of wisdom and uncertainty, of these terrible exceptions to the rule that we expect that good will be rewarded and evil punished. God's Word equips us for this, brothers and sisters. We, we needn't be afraid to face these realities and find in God's Word truth. So let's pray. Let's pray so that we can hear rightly, that I can teach rightly, and through all this, as we listen to the Lord, that we would be equipped and encouraged and changed by His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word doesn't pull punches. Your Word is unafraid to address these issues. You are unafraid, and You are fully able. And we need Your Word. We need this truth. Because we do live in this world that is so perplexing at times. But you're not surprised. And you're here for us. So thank you, Lord. And I pray you would help us. Help us hear. Help me speak. Help me proclaim. And by the power of the Spirit, that we would be equipped and helped and made more like Jesus as a result. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Who is like the wise, and, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, or for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man has power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people 
to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the day, days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one, one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. There's a lot going on in chapter 8, and you may be wondering, okay, what's happening? What's going on here? And, and let me tell you up front what, what the preacher is doing here is he's presenting the paradox. This paradox of wisdom amidst uncertainty. Of wisdom amidst alongside things that seem like vanity. This reality that we live in this apparent paradox. And the truth that's in all this is not only to present that truth, but to call us to hold on to wisdom. So I think we can say that this chapter is about this. This Exhortation, hold on to wisdom, even amidst uncertainty. It will work out in the long run. Hold on to wisdom, even amidst uncertainty. It will work out in the long run. So let's dive in and, and learn these things. First, the paradox introduced. Verse 1, right away, introduces us to this paradox because there are two things that are seemingly opposed, laid alongside one another. He introduces us to this paradox of wisdom and uncertainty. And again, the word uncertainty is a translation of the word uh, hevel in Scripture, or we learned is vapor, and translated in the ESV, vanity. Vanity uh, is a word that means worthless or futile from the word uh, in Latin for empty. Empty might be a better word in some ways to translate the word here. Empty, empty, everything is empty. And so there's this reality in Ecclesiastes of this emptiness, of this vaporedness of life, this reality that you cannot grasp, that fades away as you try to understand it. There's this reality throughout Ecclesiastes of vanity. And yet Ecclesiastes and the whole Word of God presents wisdom to us. Wisdom says there is meaning, there are truths, there is right and wrong, there are things that are stable and solid. And so there's this apparent paradox, right? There's uncertainty, things that are unstable. You can't grasp. You don't know what's going to happen. You can't understand. And yet wisdom, uh, Ecclesiastes presents wisdom as well, this truth that you can grasp, that is dependable. And so we've seen this, of course, throughout Ecclesiastes already, but in this chapter, it's presented in a vivid way, this paradox of these two things being laid alongside one another. And we see it right away in verse 1, right? It says, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Those are questions. Uh, who is like the wise? No one. There's no one truly wise. That's what the preacher is saying. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? No one knows. You can't know things absolutely. You cannot know what will happen in the future. You cannot predict what the outcome of your actions will be. You can't guarantee certain things. You can't know the totality of the implications. You, you can't know 
No one is wise in this way. No one can interpret things in this way. That is truth. Then he's going to go on to say, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. There's benefits to wisdom. Wisdom has a positive effect. And yet we can't know. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this paradox? We've done lots of different things throughout history, by the way. Culture has dealt with these realities in different ways. There are probably three different seasons of thinking about this paradox. There's what's called pre-modern history. And the pre-modern person looks at life and says we can know something about some things, but not much about anything. There's a lot of mystery out there. There's a lot of things that are unknown. We can know some things perhaps, but not really. And so you live in this world of mystery, and, and, and there's truth in that, but it can also, for the pre-modern person, mean that they live in fear. Who knows what's going to happen? We don't know what's behind these things. And, and so pre-modern thought often is combined with, uh, with belief in many different gods and spirits that can do all sorts of things you, you don't expect, the pre-modern mind. Well, then along came modern thinking, where we used biblical principles, really, to start to understand the world but then made this mistake thinking that if we can definitely know some things, then we can definitely know everything. And so there was this, this overconfidence, this enthusiasm that, that basically said, we can know all that there, there is to know. And a matter of fact, if, if we don't know it, it, it really doesn't, it's just a fable. So, so all of truth is, is only what humans know. And, and so it's kind of the, pen, the pendulum swings the other way. And then history in reality, and Ecclesiastes-type truths have their effect. And through the failures of this modern viewpoint, particularly in the 20th century, with, with massive death through warfare, massive limitations in understanding things, um, moral failures, scientific limitations, through all that, there was a reaction called postmodernism, saying that if we can't be sure about something, absolutely, then we really can't be sure about anything. And so the pendulum swings back all the way to the other side. And we live in many ways in a postmodern world where we can't really know much besides what we feel ourselves. Well, Ecclesiastes speaks right into the middle of all of this. It brings truth right into this reality that we live in a world where we can know some things, but we can't know everything. And so how do we live? How do we think? How do we process? How do we survive? How do we deal with this reality when, it, when it's so close to home? In the case of someone like Harvey Weinstein, perhaps in your life you've known something as tragic as that. What do you do? How do you think through that? How do you deal with life? Ecclesiastes speaks to us. It acknowledges the uncertainty, the vanity, the hardship, but it also never lets go of God's wisdom. And so it presents this paradox. It presents it as a reality right here in verse 1. You can't be truly and fully wise, and yet wisdom has its benefits. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Wisdom has an effect on who we are. It changes our attitude, our disposition. It, it brings us joy and graciousness. It can turn pride and anger into humility and gratitude. That's what's going on here. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. There's a benefit in your life to walk in wisdom, even though there's uncertainty. 
And this is the reality in God's creation. There are things we don't understand. Yet we can know certain things. This is true all around us. Paradox is part of what creation is, at least for us in our limited vantage point, right? It's all around us. It's in the physical world. Is light a particle or a wave? We know when light hits things, it, it acts like a particle. Things come exploding off of surfaces when light hits them, just like a particle. We, that's documented. But we also know light bends and is refracted and so forth. It acts like a wave. So is it a particle or a wave? Yep. It is. How about matter and energy? Right? The universe is matter and energy. The physical universe. Matter and energy. Well, we're finding that as you get down to the very small size of matter, it's made of these little energy packets. These waves of energy. So matter itself is comprised of energy. So what's the universe made out of? Matter or energy? Yep. We live in that paradox. How about your future? Is your future determined by your choices and decisions? Or is God in control of the future? Yep. It's a paradox. That's the reality. To live in this world is to live amidst this paradox of, of these apparent contradictions. And I'm reminded of what Wesley said to Inigo Montoya when he said, I must know. He said, get used to disappointment. You can't know. You won't ever fully know. Get used to disappointment. Get used to depending on God. Because that's where this is driving us. This is where this is meant to drive us. Our answer, our resolution to this paradox is not in our own thinking and our own ability to overcome. The resolution is in recognizing behind it all, we've been seeing this in Ecclesiastes, right? Behind it all, and at the end of it all, is God himself. We look to God, and that's the only place where we can dwell with these realities in peace. If you must know, you'll never be content. But if you can trust God, you'll be content. Are you content without knowing the future? Without knowing what the future holds, but knowing who holds the future? Can you let go? Can you trust God? Can you pursue wisdom and goodness but be content if it all doesn't work out as you planned? Will you do good even when it doesn't seem to produce the results that you expect? Can you trust God to handle this paradox? That's what Ecclesiastes is calling us to right there in verse 1 even. Now he'll go on here and we'll follow. He says now the he takes the paradox and he applies it to relating to authorities. And so the next section, 2 through 9, is about this paradox in relating to authorities. Now, he's speaking of the king here. We don't have a king. The king represents a person, a king or a queen, a person particularly in this day who had absolute authority. So there was no rule of law necessarily. The king or queen was the law. They were the absolute law. They were in charge of everything and their kingdoms, and could do what they wanted, and that's the context here. Now, we don't live in that political reality right now. So even though we don't have absolute monarchs, and there haven't been absolute monarchs for a while, um, we still do have relative authorities who are given responsibility and real authority over different areas of life. We live under authority. 
This is part of God's design. Your parents, when you're a minor, can make decisions for you, life-changing decisions. Your teachers and professors can determine your final grade and therefore your career. Your employer can hire or fire you and choose your compensation. Your local authorities, town authorities, can determine the tax rate and what goes on in the schools. Police officers can pull you over and give you a ticket. Judges can send you to jail. They're all authorities, and they illustrate this principle. And so we need this truth, even though we don't live under a king and a queen, because we live under authority, and we live under this paradox of, of vanity, unknown things, unsure things, even bad things that might happen, and wisdom. And our culture, by the way, does not like this idea. We don't like the idea of people having authority over us. We think that liberty means being your own authority. But that's not liberty. That's anarchy. But that's what our culture tends to think, that, that liberty is being free to do what you want, being your own authority. But, but biblical liberty is being free to do what is right under the authority of God and His delegated authorities. That's what biblical liberty is. The modern idea of freedom is to exalt the self above all and create an unstable world ruled by billions of little tyrants over imaginary kingdoms. That's where our culture is. Our culture wouldn't like this section of Scripture. This sort of thinking where, where freedom is, is the ultimate virtue and I'm the ultimate tyrant over my imaginary kingdom, it creates insurrectionists on the left and the right, and everywhere in between. John Adams, founding father, rightly said that he feared the tyranny of the mob more than the tyranny of the king. Ecclesiastes calls us to something very different, and we have to wrestle with this. Whatever your political leaning might be, I would submit to you, you have the tendencies in your own heart, I do as well, of an insurrectionist. And so this word, this section of Scripture needs to speak to you and to me. It calls us to proper regard for authority. So if you could just step back for a second and be self-aware of that tendency and say, okay, I'm just going to listen right now. I'm not going to be thinking of how I don't like this message and I don't like this truth and all the reasons. Just sit back, back up from that a little bit, listen to the Word of God, and let it guide you. There are four key principles in here in regards to how we relate to authority in light of these paradoxes that we see around us. Verse 2 and 3, it says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. This is calling us to respect those in authority, to respect the king, certainly here, but for us to respect those in authority. They are put there by God. It says, because of God's oath to him. That God is the one who's installed the king. God's the one behind us. And, and certainly, whether we have a king or just any authority, Scripture is consistent in this. That the authorities are there from God. Romans 13. They are installed by God. Even with their imperfections. Even with these paradoxes that are around, the reality is God is behind this. Key, core, principle. And how we relate to authorities. We respect them because God is in control of them being in that position of authority. Even when they may do evil. And that we're not to be insurrectionists. We are to use a proper 
due process and rule of law in relating to that authority. It doesn't mean do nothing. There's a godly way to respond. So respect. Secondly, verse 3. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. It says, and then later on, verse 5, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. We are called to do right, to stand up for what is right in our response to authorities. Whatever they might be advocating, we are to stand for what is right. And the authorities are put there by God, Romans 13 teaches us, to enforce the right, to advocate the right, and to punish those who don't follow the right. That's their job. They have an accountability certainly under that. And if we commit ourselves to do right, we will by and large avoid problems with the authorities. There are exceptions, right? Ecclesiastes teaches us that. But by and large, we will avoid problems by doing right ourselves because that's what they're there for. He's leading us in wisdom. We're not to abandon the wise way to relate to authorities because there are exceptions. This is the tendency that's in our culture right now. Exceptions are to be noted and dealt with, certainly, in a biblical way. But we don't abandon wisdom. That, that's part of what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. When we see these exceptions and we see these problems, the, the modern mind says, well, forget it all. There's no truth. I'm going to do what I want. Ecclesiastes says, no. There's wisdom. There's God. And when we live in light of that, we can deal with these things in a right way. There is police brutality out there. And if you're a minority, you are subject to the fear of racially motivated police abuse. That does happen. Those things are real. Denying them does not help. But we don't eradicate law enforcement because of the wrong cases. We don't treat every police officer as if he or she were a racist and a murderer because of those that happen to be. We practice the wisdom of Ecclesiastes because our eyes are on the Lord. We respect authorities. We approach reform from a biblical perspective, not from an anarchist's perspective. We must do the right thing. Third principle, verse 5. It says, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. And in keeping with our R's, respect, right, and now the third thing, relax. Relax. There is a way to go about this. We don't need to respond and react and get angry and let the news media get us all riled up and join the crowd of insurrectionists on their way to the guillotine. But instead, to know that there is a proper time and a just way. There is a time and a way for everything. God is behind all this. And there is a way to deal with injustice. There is a way to deal with these problems. Avoiding hatred and anxiety and insurrection. Advocating wisely for change. Now it might involve civil disobedience perhaps at times. But it should be done with our eyes on the Lord. And on what is right. Not out of anger and hatred and fear. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now there are loads of wonderful examples of this in history. I'm grateful for our many black brothers and sisters who have endured centuries even of racism 
and patiently pursued change in a godly way. Those who have stood up amidst overwhelming racism to do what is right and to be leaders. There are so many out there, just some. Richard Allen, founder of the AME, Christian leader. Abolitionist Frederick Douglass. More recently, Brigadier General Benjamin Davis, commander of the Buffalo Soldiers, who was the first general, uh, African-American general, in an age when it was very difficult to be an officer as an African-American. Then his son, four-star general, Benjamin Davis, commander of the Tuskegee Airmen and, and others. People like Martin Luther King, who practiced Christian response to injustice. I think of, I'm very grateful for the Gospel Coalition and the many men and women who are black there who have led a way to respond to these things, men like Ben Watson and others. I'm thankful for historical examples like William Wilberforce, who as a Christian continued to be in politics to advocate for what was right and to do it in, in ways in line with Ecclesiastes. He started as a young man in 1791 advocating for the cessation of the slave trade. And it wasn't until 40 years later he witnessed the outlawing of slavery in the British Empire. He fell sick the next day and he died that week. He had patiently endured in the face of injustice and done the right thing and it brought great change. That change needs to keep on happening, certainly. But grateful for these examples of, of a Christian way to deal with these adversities, these problems, these exceptions that are out there, these injustices. Christian leadership and tactful appeals and protests are how we reform unjust authorities biblically. The methods of the French Revolution, insurrection, and the guillotine dishonor God. They destroy society, and they reveal a lack of faith and reliance on God and His ways. You and I live in a resurgence of the mindset of the French Revolution. We must decide whether the cause is on the right or the left or somewhere in between. Do we believe in God or not? Will we refuse the rancor and godlessness of our polarized society and choose to represent a biblical approach or will we join the masses on the way to the guillotine? Ecclesiastes and elsewhere calls us to something very different. No matter what our political persuasion might be. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not speaking to the other side. I'm speaking to your side. My side. Our side. God's word is speaking. More importantly, of course, to us in this. Now there's an aspect here that's really important. The aspect of relying on God in all this. And, and so the preacher addresses that here as well. He says, no man has power to retain the spirit, verse 8, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge for more, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. The reality is, is that no authority has power like God does. No authority can control the future. You can't control the future. And so in all this, we recognize that these verses apply to the king as well as the subject. That no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. God alone, he's in control. He's bigger than the authorities. He's bigger than that person who might be a person who's abusing authority. Verse 9 concludes, when man has power over man to his hurt, this whole context, this, the preacher is observing this reality that authorities can bring hurt to others. And these truths come to this context and say that God is bigger than the authorities. 
And so we trust him because he's in control. We don't fear the authority in that sense. We fear God. So respect, do right, relax, and rely on God. Let me challenge you to to consider these things and consider them for your own life. And consider them in your own context. Maybe an important context just to continue is how we respond to the protocols for COVID-19. We still have to wear masks. We still have to follow the protocols. I don't think it's time for civil disobedience. I don't think we have grounds. I'd love to talk to you about that. We've talked through that and thought through that. So we apply this here, right? You wearing your mask right now is an application of this. I know you don't want to wear a mask. I don't like to wear one. But this is about respecting, doing right, relaxing, and relying on God in a very real way. Well, I spent probably too much time on that. Let me continue. The paradox continues applying it to life in general. Verse 10 and following. It speaks of this reality. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. This is the Harvey Weinstein reality. There are people who have hidden wickedness or even open wickedness and yet are still praised. There is this vanity where wisdom doesn't rule that allows the wicked to continue and to be praised and admired. And this reality doesn't just exist with the Harvey Weinsteins. It exists in churches. The stats are very discouraging in how much abuse is allowed to continue in churches and go hidden. Some say up to 20% of Christian homes are experiencing some sort of abuse. That's a sobering reality. There is this reality that people can look great on the outside and not be great. And Ecclesiastes speaks into this and God's Word speaks into this. And we as pastors, by the way, want you to know we are aware of these realities and these possibilities. Please do not hesitate to get help to come to us. This is a reality that Ecclesiastes goes after. It's a vanity. It's perplexing. It can be discouraging. It's there in our culture. It's around us. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. There is this reality that when people can get away with things, they they think they can do these things. And it goes on in all sorts of levels around us. Personally, in a personal way, it may happen to you. It can happen in our culture as well. Yet, Ecclesiastes continues and says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. The preacher is saying that, there, that the person who does evil, it will not go well with them. It might go well with them in the short run. It will not go well with them in the long run. Generally speaking, it will tend not to go well with them in the short run. But there are these exceptions. There are these people who do well, who succeed while doing evil. But it will not go well with them in the long run. We're going to get to that in conclusion here. One other thing I want to highlight before I hit the final point is what he says. 
in verse 15. This is important. It's in the context of these realities. He says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Brothers and sisters, the reality is sometimes living in this broken world under the sun is just exhausting and wearying for all of us. And if you are subject to this vanity in whatever form, you know what I'm talking about. When you've worked hard to do the right thing and it doesn't succeed, it's exhausting. It's wearying. And Ecclesiastes has this refrain again and again. It's here again in verse 15. God provides oases for us amidst the exhaustion. And it's called good friends, good food, good fellowship. Being with good friends, enjoying the blessings you have along the way in life under the sun is really important. And I would submit that many of us are exhausted not only because of the vanity of this life, but because we don't practice the wisdom here in verse 15 of making a priority of good friends and good fellowship and celebrating together. It should be a regular part of our lives. That's part of what the Sabbath about, is about in Scripture. We practice Sunday worship, making Sundays a day where you hang out with good friends, eat good food, have good fellowship. Now, I know we're limited in, the, in these days of COVID, but I can't wait. I can't wait for when we're through this. Certainly, we can practice this on small levels, but there'll be a day soon coming out of COVID where I look forward to practicing this together. I, I have a, something I would like to do when we come out of this as a church. I would like to have like six months of potlucks and picnics together just to take time to be together. <laughs> to enjoy good food, good friends, good fellowship, to invite our friends and neighbors who don't yet know the Lord to come and be with us and experience that taste of heaven that God intends for our good. I, I don't want you to miss that here in verse 15. I don't want you to miss that application. In conclusion, we've talked about the paradox here. Let me talk about the paradox resolved because that is here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and elsewhere, as I already read in verse 14 and 15, or uh, yeah, 14 and 15, verse 12 and 13 actually, there, there is this truth that it will not go well with the evil person who continues their evil. And it will go well with the good person. There is a reality that there's this general principle, but also this final principle. The paradox will be resolved. Ecclesiastes 12 says it more explicitly. For God will bring in every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We've talked about the judgment of God is his kingly role, his kingly exercise over all things. And it's a good thing because he will reward the good. Those who have persisted in doing good, who have relied on the Lord, who have been experiencing difficulties in life but have chosen to hold on to the good and to trust God, he will reward. There will be blessings. But those who have chosen to pursue the evil or give up on the good, there will be punishment. God will bring every deed into judgment. 
We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Acts 17, Paul gives us more context. He says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This man is Jesus, the ultimate man, the God-man, who has overcome evil, died on the cross for our sins, risen alive forevermore, reigning now with God. He is in control over this apparent paradox, and he will be the one who judges all things. We look to him for the resolution of this paradox. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Revelation fills it out. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Judgment day will resolve the paradox finally and forever. And we put our hope in that sure reality. Yes, God does bring a measure of justice at times here on this earth, but ultimate justice will be done on that final day. And so we can rely on God and endure trusting Him even while we do our best to do what is right now, knowing that He will resolve it all in judgment. Now there's a side to this we have to face because if we're honest with ourselves, if we've looked at what we just read last week in Ephesians chapter, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, no one is righteous. And if we think we can stand on that judgment day saying, well, I've done good always, and I've been wise always, and I've never done anything that would be abusive to anybody else, if we think we can lay claim to that, we're in for a lot of trouble. Because this judgment is a perfect judgment. It's a just judgment. It's a good judgment. And if we stand before it on our own two feet, we're in trouble because no one is righteous. And this is part of the resolution of this paradox. There is one who's righteous. There is one who's always responded to injustice in the right way. There is one who has been respectful. There is one who's relied on God. There is one who's fulfilled our righteousness. There is one who has earned eternal reward. And this same one, voluntarily, in his amazing love for us, has taken on himself the justice that we deserve. He went to the cross. Jesus Christ bore our sins on that cross. He bore the consequences of our failure to do what is right. He paid for those perfectly, fully, completely, finally. And then He rose again. And through faith in Him, simple faith in Him, we experience this amazing transaction where all of our sins are put on Him and paid for and His righteousness is now credited to us as if we had done what was right only and always. And so we look to Jesus. We trust Him. We trust Him for our forgiveness. We trust Him for righteousness. We trust Him to properly judge. We trust Him to lead us in this life to help us be like Him. We look to Jesus. 
Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is what we're called to do in this life of paradox. We rely on Him. We endure. We wait. We do right. We trust Him. And then one day we can say with the Apostle Paul, as he says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Hold on to wisdom, even amidst uncertainty. It will work in the long run. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the truth that's here. Thank You for You, Jesus, that You have overcome, and You have endured, and we can look to You. I pray for each one here, help us to look to You as we live amidst this paradox. To do what's right. To glorify You. To trust You. To relax. To even rejoice amidst these oases You give us. And through this all, Lord, be greatly glorified, we pray. Amen.